0: Open up your Bibles, if you would, to Daniel chapter 11. In the past two lessons, we have been studying the final vision, which was actually a series of prophetic revelations that were given to Daniel by God through an angelic messenger. That revelation constituted three chapters. In chapter 10, we had the prelude to the chapter 11. to to the revelations chapter 11 actually contains the prophecies and chapter 12 is the prologue to them it's also of course the end of the entire book of daniel in daniel 11 verses 2 to 32 a prophetic parade of gentile kings whose decisions and battles would have a direct effect on israel the epicenter of scripture marched before us in perfect sequence We looked at a parade last time, and we stressed it was a parade of fighting kings, and we stressed the fact that God had been chastening his people, Israel, because of her rebellion and apostasy toward him, for which they had not genuinely repented even after having spent 70 years as captives in Babylon. Only a small percentage of the population had actually returned to Israel where they could rebuild the temple and worship God without the distraction of a myriad of pagan temples and the ubiquitous presence of worldly influences on their families and where they could await the arrival of the promised Messiah in the Judean town of Bethlehem. So serious is the disobedience of his people to Jehovah and so stubborn has been their continued rejection of him and his son when he came, that their chastening continues even to this day. And it will continue until both the time of the Gentiles and God's indignation on Israel Israel are fulfilled, which will be at the end of the tribulation, at the end of the great tribulation, the final three and a half years of the tribulation, when the Lord Jesus himself returns to earth at his second coming. And then at long last, Israel will know and acknowledge him, and he will establish his millennial kingdom on earth. Well, in the first part of our outline, Prophecies of the Final Vision, we did look at that parade of fighting kings. At the front of the parade were Persian kings, and then there were Greek kings, and following behind them were Seleucid and Ptolemaic kings, and at almost the back of the parade was a very vile king. Regarding his treatment of God's people, he was very vile. And his name was Antiochus IV Epiphanes. The precision of the 135 prophecies of verses 2 to 30, well actually to 35. We will look at some of those this morning. But the precision, there's 135 prophecies in those 35 verses and the precision of them being fulfilled was evidenced as history marched on, and each one was lived out to the most minute of details, which gives us confidence that those that are yet to be fulfilled will also be fulfilled to minute detail, precisely, literally, just as God had said. Now, in this lesson, we're going to discuss the next two sections of chapter 11's prophecies. First, we're going to look at a profile of faithful courage in verses 32 to 35, which contains God's predictions concerning Israel's reaction to the atrocities and the abominations of Antiochus Epiphanes in what history now calls the Maccabean Revolt. So if you want to write in the white place in your Bible, next to verses 32 to 35 with a bracket, you could say, The Maccabean Revolt. So next time you study Daniel, you'll remember that those verses predicted that time in history. All right. So last time we looked at a parade of fighting kings this morning, we're going to look at a profile of faithful courage. And then in verses 36 to 45, we're going to move on and look at what God predicted about a fearful king. And he does end the parade. He's the caboose of the parade, this fearful last king and we're going to learn about the character of this king, the conquest of this king, and the conclusion of him. And he is, of course, the one who will end up, he will be the final Gentile king of the times of the Gentiles, and he is the man, we don't know his name yet, but we refer to him commonly as the Antichrist. So let's begin by looking at a profile of faithful courage, verses 32 to 35. Now we did Study the first part of 32 last time, but let me just read it again and then go on to 35. Verse 32, Daniel 11, and such as do wickedly against the covenant shall be corrupted by flatteries. But the people that do know their God shall be strong and do exploits. And they that understand among the people, this is speaking about the people of the covenant, the Jewish people, they that understand among the people shall instruct many. Yet they shall fall by the sword and by flame, by captivity, and by spoil many days. Now when they shall fall, they shall be hoping, which is a King James way of saying they'll be helped (laughs) with a little help. But many shall cleave to them with flatteries and some of them of understanding shall fall to try them and to purge and to make them white even to the time of the end because it is yet for a time appointed well in verse 32a which we did discuss last week gabriel god's probably messenger angel in this situation um he gave the prediction from god that Antiochus Epiphanes would flatter and corrupt many of the people of the covenant, the Jewish people. And history has told us this is true, this happened. History indicates that there were plenty of Jewish people who cooperated with his Hellenization program with which he was obsessed, you know, wanting to Greekatize everybody. So really, the most tragic part of that horrific time in Israel's history, and this was about 168 BC, was the large amount of apostate Jews who assisted Antiochus in his efforts to assimilate their own people into the Greek culture. And the worst part of that was also into the Greek religion to worship their false gods, you know, the mythological pantheon of Greek gods and goddesses. They even helped him construct a gymnasium in Jerusalem, which was not good because it was next to the temple. And the temple was up on the temple mount, so it was high. And from the temple courtyards, you would look down on the city. And there right next to the temple was this open gymnasium in which the the athletes competed in the nude. And those Jews who helped build that gymnasium, also some of them participated in the games. And they somehow or another hid their circumcision uh, so they could participate. And the other athletes would not know that they were Jewish. Sadly, they also participated in the offering of sacrifices to the immoral Greek gods. And they profaned the Sabbath. They were apostate Jews. So it was not only rebellion against the abomination of Antiochus that precipitated the Maccabean revolt of Israel's faithful remnant. It was also the apostasy and the idolatry that was growing among their own people that triggered that rebellion. Now, we happen to know that God looked very favorably on the initiators of the Maccabean revolt. And we know this because of Gabriel's words in Daniel eleven thirty-two. After having said of those apostate Jews and such as do wickedly against the covenant, shall he, meaning Antiochus, corrupt by flatteries, the angel went on to say, but the people that do know their God, that would be believing Jews, shall be strong and do exploits. God was saying ahead of time, and remember now, He's talking to Daniel, and that's about 250 years before this revolt. 250 years before Antiochus came on the scene. So God is saying ahead of time that the Jews who sided with Antiochus did wickedly, or they would do wickedly, because they would allow themselves to be corrupted by his flattering lies. While those who opposed Antiochus, God said, would do so. Why? Because they knew their God. They knew him. They believed in Jehovah. They were faithful to his his commandments, to his laws. They wanted to serve him and worship him and obey his commandments. Therefore, he would provide them with the strength and with the courage that they would need to fight his enemies and their enemies, which sadly were not only the Seleucids, but also some of their own people. Well, if you remember, after Antiochus was greatly humiliated by the Roman consul Popilius Linnaeus when he was going to attack Egypt but only got as far as Alexandria when the ships of Kittim met him and uh, Popilius drew that circle in the sand around him and Antiochus and said decide whether you want to go to war with Rome or not by the time I leave this circle and Antiochus knew he was in no position to to war with growing Rome and so he had to leave Egypt and go back to Syria and on his way he vented his anger on Jerusalem. Well after he abominated the temple he converted it permanently, or tried to anyway, into a shrine for the worship of Zeus. He allowed only pigs to be offered as sacrifices not only in the temple but all throughout Israel And he converted the temple's priestly chambers into houses of prostitution. So it was a terrible, terrible abomination that went on. It just didn't happen in one day. He also issued an edict which forbid the practice of Judaism on the pain of death. And he enforced this by sending his soldiers uh, to make spontaneous house searches throughout Jerusalem and then even into the countryside. And if they found that either Sabbath or dietary laws were being kept, or if they found a newborn uh, baby boy had been circumcised, or if there was even one page of the scripture hidden somewhere in that house, then the entire family was put to death. Gabriel spoke of certain godly Jewish leaders, verse 33, who would, underst- who, who would understand, because they know God, they would instruct others to be strong and to be faithful. Gabriel said, And they that understand among the people shall instruct many, yet they shall fall by the sword and by flame, by captivity and by spoil many days. How did these instructors of the Jewish people, how did they have their insight and understanding so that they could teach other? How did they, how did they know what was right to do? Well, it could very well be that those wise, God-fearing Jews had gained their insight about what was happening in their day from these very prophecies of Daniel, chapter 11. I mean, they could really go through chapter 11 and uh, and say, oh, look, here he's talking about um, so, Seleucus the first, and here he's talking about Ptolemy the fourth, because that was recent history to them, and so they could have followed right through chapter 11, and then when they got to the vile person, that king in verse 21, and what he did with his abomination and um, everything, they would understand that that was Antiochus Epiphany, so they could just follow right through. And then get to the point about themselves, the people that understand God would favor them and strengthen them. And they'd say, hey, this is us, you know, talking about the Maccabean revolt. So it's just also very interesting that they could have understood everything that was going on in their day based on the scripture, particularly from Daniel chapter 11, because that's the chapter we have that is about the intertestamental period of time. What happened between the book of Malachi and Matthew? Well, just as predicted by Gabriel, actually by God through Gabriel, in verse 33, many faithful Jews did lose their lives during that sad time. Circumcised baby boys were tied around their mother's necks, and both the mother and son were cast from the city walls to be crushed below. Jews were boiled alive in hot cauldrons if they refused to eat the pig meat offered to Zeus. But like Daniel, who had been thrown in the lion's den, and like his three Hebrew friends in the fiery furnace... As well as the faithful remnant of Jews who will be living during the horrific reign of the Antichrist, especially in the three and a half years of the Great Tribulation, there were those in this Maccabean era who truly knew God. And they understood all that was at stake. Because if they, if the Jewish people were assimilated into the Greek culture and into worshiping the Greek gods, that would be the end of God's chosen people, the end of Israel. And therefore, Satan was behind all this to try to prevent the Christ from being born. So they purposed, these, these wise Jews purposed to place their trust in God, just like Daniel and just like the three Hebrews and like the tribulation saints. They trusted in God whether they were physically delivered or not. But Antiochus' message was crystal clear, either be assimilated or, or be annihilated, Satan was obviously <clears throat> using that wicked man to try to obliterate God's people before Christ could be born, and to enforce this diabolic plan to completely integrate the Jews into the Greek culture and end the worship of the true God, Jehovah God, Antiochus sent his soldiers throughout the nation. One such military detachment was sent to the little village of Modin, about 17 miles northwest of Jerusalem. We've talked about this before, but we'll review it very quickly. There, just as they had been doing everywhere they went in the land, the soldiers built an altar to Zeus, and then they commanded the townspeople of Modin to gather around that altar. They found an aged Jewish priest, and he was ordered to offer the sacrificial pigs to the pig, to the Greek god in honor of Antiochus, to which this old priest named Mattathias immediately responded, never. However, before those Syrian soldiers could react, another priest, a Jewish apostate priest, quickly stepped forward and offered to make the necessary sacrifice. He said, I'll do it. And everybody knew that once he had offered that pig, every villager would then be forced to eat the pig flesh or be killed. And it was all more than the godly Mattathias would tolerate. He ripped the sword from the Syrian officer in charge and thrust it through him, killing him. And then before anyone had any time to react, he thrust the same sword through the body of the apostate Jewish priest and left his body lying on the altar to Zeus. Well, good thing this man had five sons, five grown-up sons who were equally enraged about everything that had been going on in Israel. And they took their cue from their father and slew the remaining soldiers, who, of course, were outnumbered by the villagers. Then they pulled down the pagan altar and fled to the Judean hills, and a revolt had begun against the enemies of the true God. Unfortunately, those enemies were both Gentile and Jewish. As word about what had occurred in Modin spread throughout the land, more Jewish men left their villages to join this Hasmonean priestly family of Mattathias and his sons. And so it kept growing. Uh, The numbers grew. Within a year, Mattathias died after having first passed on leadership of the revolt to his son Judah, who quickly proved to be a keen military strategist and soon earned him the nickname, the Maccabee, which comes from the Hebrew word maccavet, which means the hammer. And his followers became known as the Maccabees, the hammers. In his first major battle, Judah the Hammer gained a brilliant victory over the forces of Apollonius, the general under um, Antiochus Epiphanes. And, and actually, Judah himself s- slew that seasoned general. Greatly outnumbered by the Seleucids in all of their battles, um, it was like a David and Goliath it was another amazing victory really another David and Goliath situation <laughs> because um in one of the battles the um the the Seleucids even brought an elephant corps against this handful of Maccabees and yet the Maccabees won the victory it was just amazing i thought about the David and Goliath of course god was strengthening them just as he said here in this in these prophecies But uh, God was definitely on the side of the faithful Jews. And um, I thought that the only difference was that instead of using a slingshot, as young David had done, they were using hammers. The Maccabees were using hammers. But in um, another battle, a second battle, the Maccabees gained gained another decisive victory. And in that third battle, um, that's the one they bought. Uh, fought against even that fearsome elephant corps, and it was interest. it's interesting if you read <clears throat> first and mac and second maccabees those uninspired uh, um apocryphal books that do give us a lot of history there was one incident in in that fight um where an elephant was going to crush one of the maccabee brothers <clears throat> one of math sons named Eleazar, and um the boy had a knife, and he was able at the last minute to plunge that knife or sword was actually a sword into the elephant's chest and kill the elephant. So it was just I think Michael was up there in the heavenlies, definitely defending his people. But the effectiveness of the guerrilla style warfare was becoming apparent to the Jewish people of these of these guys, these Maccabees, and and more were joining their ranks. They would uh, sneak up on Syrian outposts, they would even, God forbid, they even would fight on the Sabbath, realizing that God would forgive them, but they would sneak up on Syrian outposts and they would overtake the soldiers there, and, and they went throughout the whole land destroying all of their pagan altars. They would also even kill apostate Jews. After telling Daniel that his people at that at the time of that vile king of the north, Antiochus Epiphanes, um, that they would fall by sword and by fire and be taken captive and, and plundered. After telling Daniel that in verse 33, Gabriel had then said that when they shall fall, they shall be helped with a little help, <clears throat> but many shall cleave to them with flatteries. Well, the Maccabees did receive little help their little help. They received it from those Jews who came alongside to help them, oust their oppressors. However, <clears throat> if you notice, there were many who supported their cause with flatteries. There were a few, little, that came to help them, but there were many who cleaved to them, but it says with flatteries. And that in the Hebrew, that means in hypocrisy. They saw the Maccabean success against the Greeks, So they pretended loyalty to the cause, but they weren't real believers. They were just pretending they were in hypocrisy. And they were probably doing that to save themselves from the Maccabees' swords. Because, as I said, the Maccabees also were killing apostate Jews. The courage of the Maccabees, and, you know, the courage was based on their faith, because they were willing to die for their faith in God, that proved to be a mighty witness for many of their unsaved brethren. And Israel was in great need of a spiritual revival at this time. And, and the good news is that there were many Jews who came to genuine faith in the Lord during that time of their amazing victory over another Goliath. God's, so God's purpose was accomplished. Some of them understanding, this is verse 34, I'm sorry, it's verse 35, some of those who had understanding, which would speak of true believers, would fall, but they would fall, and in their fall, because of their witness for their faith, many would be purged and made white. That bloody struggle actually helped to purify many Jews in Israel. That term, to make them white in Scripture, is a metaphor for salvation. So there were many who came to saving faith in in, uh, the Lord God during this time. It was the persecutions of Antiochus that led to the rise of the Chassidim, a sect of Judaism that had already begun to grow in Israel, but received greater popularity because of the atrocities of Antiochus Epiphanies. Those of the Chasidim, which in Hebrew means the godly, pious, loyal ones, uh, they advocated strict adherence to the Mosaic Law and to the traditions of Judaism. They, they were good. They had good, solid Bible doctrine. They were godly, pious, loyal ones. And the Maccabean Revolt fanned the flames of this growing sect and resulted in a renewed desire for and expectation of the Messiah among the Jews that actually continued until the coming of Jesus. Before this revolt, many Jews were just falling away from even anticipating and looking forward to the promised seed of the woman, the, the Messiah. But this um, this revolt helped that cause. And there was this spiritual uh, revival before the first coming of Christ. It's interesting, some of the Hasidim eventually evolved into the sect of the Pharisees. And although we know that their doctrine was fundamentally correct, by the time of Christ... Unfortunately, most of the Pharisees had become strict traditionalists and proud legalists and selfish materialists, which is sad. Yet another group that was born out of the Hasidim was the sect of the Essenes. And they too had good, solid, fundamental doctrine. But by the time of Christ... They had turned to isolationism. They wanted to just completely separate themselves from all worldly influences, and so they went to live monkish-type lives in the caves of Qumran near the Dead Sea, where we have them to thank, at least, for the meticulously uh, handwritten copies of the Old Testament scriptures that they made there. The Essenes rejected the liberal rationalism of the Sadducees and they rejected the materialism of the Pharisees and yet they were also reprimanded by Jesus. You know what they did wrong? They hid their light under a bushel. Matthew 5.15 You don't hide in a cave and turn to isolationism. Yes, we're in the world, but we're to be a light to the world. So, anyhow, Antiochus, we know, we've talked about this many times, but Antiochus Epiphany served as a type of the coming Antichrist. His false high priest, Jason, remember him? Who bribed him for the position of the high priest? He shouldn't have had that position. Um, But he serves as a prophetic type of the coming false prophet. And the Maccabees serve as a prophetic picture of the faithful Jewish believers of the Tribulation period, perhaps even the 144,000. All of that that happened 168 years before Christ in his first coming was a foreshadowing Of the greatest conflict to come, the future time of distress, as it's called in Daniel 12, verse 1. The tribulation, the great tribulation. Just as many in Israel were purged and brought, you know, they became white. They were brought to salvation because of the abomination fires of Antiochus before the Lord's first coming so shall Israel at God's appointed time be refined through the abomination fires of the Antichrist so that she will be ready for the Lord Jesus at his second coming. Now, of course, not every Jew will convert. Daniel 12.10 says that the wicked will act wickedly and none of the wicked will understand. But those who have insight will understand that insight will come by way of the end times prophecies in the word of God such as those we have been studying in the book of Daniel but those who willfully continue to act wickedly even in the full light of God's fulfillment of everything that he ever said would occur in that final 70th week those who continue stubbornly willfully to act wickedly they will meet their end when Jesus does indeed return. Only true believers will occupy Israel at the time of his return. Uh, the others will be destroyed. And Israel corporately, finally, as a nation, um, will believe in Jesus Christ who died for her. Israel shall be saved, Romans eleven twenty six. So let's move on now and look at the prediction of a fearful king in verses 36 to 45. And the king shall do according to his will, and he shall exalt himself and magnify himself above every god and shall speak marvelous things against the god of gods and shall prosper till the indignation be accomplished, for that that is determined shall be done. Neither shall he regard the God of his fathers, nor the desire of women, nor regard any God, for he shall magnify himself above all. But in his estate shall he honor the God of forces, and a God whom his father knew not shall he honor with gold and silver and with precious stones and pleasant things. Thus shall he do in the most strongholds with a strange God whom he shall acknowledge and increase with glory. And he shall cause them to rule over many and shall divide the land for gain. I think I'll stop right there. Prediction of a fearful king. Okay, the first 35 verses of chapter 11 have provided us with an impressive introduction to the last section of the chapter. From our historical vantage point As I said earlier, there are 135 precisely fulfilled prophecies in those verses, and that is a fact that serves as a solid indicator that the yet future events which are described for us in verses 36 to 45 will also know precise fulfillment. Now, as we come to verse 36, there is a sharp break from history past. There's a time gap between verse 35 and verse 36 in the rest of the chapter. And there are no commentators, Bible commentators, as much as they try, who can adequately squeeze historical facts into a proper fulfillment of the remainder of this chapter, and also uh, the first three verses of chapter 12. When men attempt to match this last section of the scripture from Daniel with history, when they try to match up what it says here with history pass, then they force themselves to declare that there are errors in the predictions that are given. Rather than admitting, you know, coming over to our side and admitting that these verses are about yet future events concerning Daniel's 70th week. Remember Daniel's 70 weeks prophecy? That last week, that 70th week of seven years is still out there. It's still hanging out there. It has not been fulfilled But they won't say that these verses are about that seven-year tribulation period and the Antichrist and his abomination of desolation and the Lord's return, etc. Remember the man who led this attack? That second century AD anti-God, anti-Christian philosopher named Malchus Porphyry. We've talked a lot about him in our study of Daniel. He led the attack against Daniel and against Christianity. He authored 15 books under the title Against the Christians. So he's no friend of Christianity. Well, he concluded that Daniel 11, verses 30, verse 36 to 12, 3, continued to refer to Antiochus Epiphanes, even though the information about him is incorrect. <laughs> but they said this is about Antiochus Epiphanes. And that is still the view proposed by almost every liberal Bible scholar yet today. Now there are some who say that these final verses are about Herod the Great. There are some that say it's actually talking about the the Roman Empire, the ancient Roman Empire. Most, however, say that these verses are about Antiochus Epiphanes. So they uniformly declare that there is absolutely nothing yet futuristic about this final passage. Now, as mentioned repeatedly throughout this study, over and over again, I have talked about the criticism of the book of Daniel because it's a very important subject. We need to know how to defend such an important book. So I'm not going to just lightly dismiss this issue by saying that Porphyry and all those who parrot his view, are wrong, and just leave it at that. I'm not going to do that. I want you to learn apologetics so you can teach your children and share it with your husbands. There are solid reasons for saying that verse 36 introduces a new king, not Antiochus Epiphanes, a new king who has not yet entered the forefront of world history, the one we call the Antichrist. So I'm going to give you some reasons for saying that. And there are more, but I'm just going to give you a few at this point in time. If you'll notice in the introductory remarks made by Gabriel to Daniel, he talked about the scope of the prophecy. He said, uh, and this is back in chapter 10, verse 14. Um, He said, now I am come, not 10, 11, 14. Is it 11? Maybe it was ten fourteen. 14. Um, he said, Now I'm come to make thee understand what shall befall thy people in the latter days, for the, yet the vision is for many days. This means that there is at least an element in this last revelation. It has to be chapter 11. Uh, there has to be at least an element that relates to the latter days of God's program for Israel. He said, What shall befall thy people? The latter days refers to Daniel's 70th week, at the end of which God's six-part redemptive program for Israel that we discussed in chapter 9, verse 24, will be accomplished. You know, she will be saved. There will be an age of righteousness, etc. None of that has yet been fulfilled. And we discussed that in lesson 33. Now, verse 35 of chapter 11 introduces the coming break. Um, from the rest of the chapter by the phrase, to the time of the end. That same phrase is also given in verse 40. That is an eschatological term that refers to last time things. To the time of the end talks about the time of the end. So, if the last section of Daniel 11 is still all about Antiochus Epiphanes, Then why are we here? Why are we still here? If the time of the end was with Antiochus Epiphanes? Why has history continued since that guy died some more than two million I mean two millennium? Over two thousand years since the end of Antiochus Epiphanes. And that was supposed to be the time of the end? You see that doesn't make sense. Also, as I mentioned, it is possible to specifically follow the details from history of the chapter 11 prophecies up to verse 35. However, after verse 35, there is no historical data that fits with 100% accuracy, as was the case in the first section. The, the prophecies simply do not match the remaining years in the life of Antiochus Epiphanes. Nor do they match historical events concerning ancient Rome or Herod the Great or anyone else you want to plug in here. And liberal scholars admit that. They admit that this last section of chapter 11, first few verses of chapter 12, do not appropriately fit history, which is why they then resort to saying that their second century pseudo-Daniel, 2nd century B.C., fake Daniel. You know, they say the real Daniel didn't write the book of Daniel, it was a fake Daniel, pretending to be Daniel, but there would be no Daniel if there wasn't a real Daniel. (laughs) But he was not only a fake, he was also a very poor historian. You know, he was writing from the 2nd century, looking back on history and writing it to make it sound like it was prophecy, but as he looked back on history, he made mistakes. So he was a bad historian. Or there are others who say that this pseudo-Daniel just wanted to write of imaginary events. (laughs) Oh, that doesn't give me a whole lot of confidence in the Word of God. Well, verse 36 says that he shall prosper. Of course, they say that he is Antiochus Epiphanes. We say he's the Antichrist. But it says he'll prosper, prosper until the indignation is finished. The indignation speaks of the time of God's wrath on Israel because of her lack of uh, repentance and her continued rebellion. And, And he's going to be indignant against Israel until the end of the tribulation with the coming of Christ. So the indignation is not finished. It certainly wasn't finished with Antiochus Epiphanes. Also, it says in verse 37 that this king will not regard the god of his fathers. Well, Antiochus Epiphanes did regard the gods of his fathers. He, he did regard the vast pantheon of mythological Greek gods and goddesses. Also, it is understood by Jewish authorities of the Old Testament scripture that this section of Daniel refers to the future days that will herald the coming of the Messianic era. So Jewish authorities of Old Testament agree with us that this is yet future. Also the description of this ruler that is given to us in verses 36 to 45 parallels detail by detail other descriptions of the Antichrist given to us in the New Testament. You know the last three vision revelations of Daniel ended with words about the Antichrist. In chapter 7, chapter 8, we heard about him even in chapter 9, verse 27. So, it is fitting that the last revelation follows the same pattern and talks to us about the Antichrist. And it does. Also, the words in Daniel 12, 1, which refer to a future time of trouble such as never was since there was a nation even to that same time. Those words parallel the Lord's words about the great tribulation that he gave in Matthew twenty four twenty one, the Olivet Discourse, which was spoken long after the death of Antiochus Epiphanes. So it's talking about a yet future time with a different king. All right, and this last one I'm going to give you is that the king of Daniel eleven thirty six 36 to 45, Has to be a different king from the vile person of verses 21 to 32 who was Antiochus Epiphanes. Has to be a different person. And we know this because if you look at verse 40, he is going to be opposed and attacked by the kings of both the north and the south. Well, guess what? Antiochus Epiphanes was The king of the north. It can't be him. He is not going to attack himself. The king of the north is not going to attack the king of the north. So this obviously is a different king. Well, based on these reasons and others that I omitted for the sake of time, we agree with conservative scholars that there is an unspecified gap of time between verses 35 and 36 of Daniel chapter 11. The reason that the prophecies about Antiochus Epiphanes immediately precede the yet future prophecies regarding the Antichrist is because of the close connection between these two men. Antiochus served as a prophetic type of the future world dictator. You know, because so much of the book of Daniel either foreshadows or reveals to us the Antichrist Some have said that it could be called the revelation of the Antichrist, just as the book of Revelation, which is Daniel's New Testament apocalyptic counterpart, is called the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's interesting. In Daniel chapter 3, the Antichrist was typified by King Nebuchadnezzar, who built an image to represent himself, and he compelled all the people to worship it or be burned alive in the fiery furnace. He was a type of the Antichrist. In chapter 4, Antichrist was again prophetically typified by Nebuchadnezzar, who exalted himself and was brought down by God to the point of being as a beast of the earth. In chapter 5, the Antichrist was pictured by the arrogant King Belshazzar, whose profane feast was an openly brazen blasphemy to God. In chapter 6, The Antichrist was typified by King Darius, who deified himself when he signed a decree saying that nobody could pray to any god but him. In chapter 7, the Antichrist is the little horn who will emerge from the revived Roman Empire. In chapter 8, he was pictured in type by, of course, Antiochus Epiphanes and his activities against Israel. In chapter 8, he was also pictured and told to be the king of fierce countenance, verses 23 to 25. In chapter 9, the Antichrist is the prince that shall come and confirm a covenant with Israel. In chapter 11, he is foreshadowed by that vile person, Antiochus IV and Epiphanes. In chapters 11 and 12, he is the willful king responsible for Israel's unprecedented time of trouble. So you see why Daniel has often been called the revelation of the Antichrist? The prophecies presented to Daniel in his final revelation pass from a vile king to a vicious king. Although Antiochus was both vile and vicious he could not measure up to the worldwide damage done by the evil man called the antichrist who will be very very vile very very vicious so from Daniel 11:36 to 45 we are going to learn about the character of this Antichrist, this coming evil, vicious, vile king. We'll talk about his conquests and his conclusion, yea, his end. So we begin with our look at what Gabriel had to say about the character of this coming evil king, and believe me, it is not flattering. He will be characterized by atheism, narcissism, a blasphemous mouth, His apostasy from the faith of his fathers, his self-will, his self-importance, his ego, his Christ-hatred, and his love for military might. Now there are other characteristics given to us in scripture about this man, but we're going to talk now about the ones that are revealed to us here in chapter 11. So let's begin by looking at the fact that he will be self-willed. I already read about that in verse 36. and the king shall do according to his will. And it goes on. The Antichrist is going to do as he alone pleases. I mean, he's the only one he's going to consult is himself, and he's going to think that he's running the shots, (laughs) except he's really Satan's puppet, isn't he? He's Satan's puppet on strings, but he has no idea about that. But with public support and political power behind him, He is going to convince himself, deceive himself into thinking that he alone can solve the problems of the world. He will think so highly of himself as being invincibly brilliant and self-sufficient that he doesn't need the advice. He doesn't need the help of any other human being or any god. If you remember our study of him back in chapter 7, we learned that he's even going to change the calendar so that it no longer relates in any way whatsoever to the birth of Jesus. He'll do away with all holidays, you know, all Christian holidays, all Jewish holidays, anything, you know, that smacks of any other faith or religion whatsoever. Because of Gabriel's words um, in the first part of this verse, "...and the king shall do according to his will," The Antichrist is often called the Willful King. That's one of his titles, the Willful King. And there have been other self-oriented willful kings throughout history. Uh, We've read about some of them in our study. Nebuchadnezzar was a willful king. Alexander the Great. Antiochus III, who called himself the Great. And, of course, Antiochus IV, Epiphanes. And Belshazzar, and and down through history, many, many willful kings. But this man's proud haughtiness will most closely match Lucifer's ego. Look at what Gabriel told Daniel about this coming king. He says, one, he will do as he pleases, two, he will exalt and magnify himself above every god. Three, he will speak blasphemous things against the God of gods. Four, he will show no regard for the gods of his fathers nor the desire of women. And five, he will magnify himself above all. That's in verses 36 to 37. That five will do description of the the pride of the Antichrist certainly should remind the alert Bible student of the self-deceived Lucifer, when he decided he deceived himself into thinking that he could be as great or even greater than his creator. Imagine that. We have his thoughts on record because God presents them to us through Isaiah. In Isaiah 14, verses 12 to 14, God says, O Lucifer, son of the morning, how art thou cut down to the ground? For thou hast said in thine heart, now listen to this, number one, I will ascend into heaven. Number two, I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. Number three, I will sit also upon the mound of the congregation. Four, I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. And five... I will be like the Most High. The Antichrist will be just like the one he serves and the one from whom he receives his power. The Antichrist will be the antithesis of the true Christ. The true Christ, remember, in his humanity said, John 5.30, I can of mine own self do nothing. I seek not mine own will, but the will of the Father which sent me. And then remember when he was praying to his father in Gethsemane about the cup of suffering and separation that was set before him, that in his flesh he didn't want to drink, but what did he say? Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. So the Antichrist is the antithesis of the real Christ. He's Antichrist. He's opposite Christ. He's just like the dragon who empowers him and possesses him, Lucifer, Satan. Well, the Antichrist will be a self-willed king who will seek to become the world's supreme ruler. His rise to power will not initially come through military might. Uh, Remember that horse? The first horse of the apocalypse, Revelation 6, comes riding with a bow, but no arrows. He, he, um, he won't use military might to reach his position, but by way of his charismatic lure and his deceitfulness, he's going to somehow or another manage to get himself elected as the leader of a ten-nation confederacy or a coalition of ten groups of nations that are connected in some way with ancient Rome. Remember the connection of the toes and the feet to the legs of iron, to Rome, and the the fourth beast that represents Rome, the dreadful beast with iron teeth, and out of its head come ten horns, and out of the middle of the ten comes the eleventh, who is the Antichrist. There's a connection with ancient Rome. At the time of his appearance on the world scene, and he may very well be alive today, we just don't know who he is yet, and he doesn't know who he is, But at the time he appears, people and nations are going to be clamoring, they really already are, uh, for a brilliant leader to bring real resolutions for the wars and the, the rumors of wars and the violence and the terrorism that's erupting all over the world. They're going to long for a resolution, as people do today, to the ongoing Middle East crisis. And they're going to be screaming for answers about the eerie disappearance of so many millions of people. Where did they go? What happened to them? And of course I'm talking about the rapture. And they're going to be wanting answers for the increased activities in the natural realm The global warming. Maybe they can turn to Al Gore for answers. They'll be wanting to know about famines and earthquakes and diseases. They need answers. And he, the Antichrist, not Al Gore, (laughs) the Antichrist is going to bring them solutions. Or so they will think. Unfortunately, including Israel, will think that he has brought the solutions. He's going to come to the forefront of the world stage as a man of peace. Because he's going to bring peace between Israel and her anti-Semitic Arabic neighbors who want to eliminate her, eradicate her from the earth. Somehow he's going to confirm a peace treaty of sorts that will bring peace. But it's short-term peace and it's false peace. But time will reveal, and it really won't take a whole lot of time before it's revealed, that the true nature of this man is pure evil. His motives are utterly self-centered, and he breaks his promises. So that's about his self-will characteristic. Let's turn to uh, his atheism. He will be an atheist, but initially he will not make that known he will actually use religion he will use the apostate ecumenical false church which is called mystery babylon the great the great harlot god calls it after the true church is removed at the rapture what's left of christendom which is a you know not truly born again believers Just in name only, they will join hands with all kinds of other false religions and become one big ecumenical false church. And uh, it will be headed up by the false prophet. And the Antichrist will secure his own power by using the church, this church, this mystery Babylon the Great. However, in the middle of the tribulation, after he is empowered, after he's possessed by Satan, he's going to turn on her, devour her. This is in Revelation chapter 17. And he's going to replace her with his own religion, which is the religion of self-glorification. Which brings us to his next character trait, his narcissism. Narcissism. (laughs) Verse 36, we are told that the Antichrist will exalt himself and magnify himself above Every God. That is narcissistic. That's the epitome of narcissism. He will actually sit in the temple of God. Which is what Satan, Lucifer, has always wanted to do. I will be like the most high God, he said. And it says he will show himself that he is God. Show himself he's God. He's not showing anybody else, but he's showing himself. I'm God. And he will demand the first loyalty from all people of the earth. So he's going to be a narcissist, egomaniac. He's also going to have a very blasphemous mouth. He's going to curse the God of gods, it tells us in verse 36, blaspheming his holy name. Actually, his blasphemy will be so foul that people will actually be shocked at the rebellion that spews out publicly from his mouth against the Lord. And it takes a lot to shock people nowadays, doesn't it? So it's going to really be foul. He's going to have a foul mouth against the Lord God and against his anointed, the Christ. But this blasphemy is only going to be allowed for a short time. You know, God is in control. He will allow this man to prosper, but only until the indignation be accomplished. You see, God is going to be using the satanic evil of this dragon-empowered man to bring about Israel's readiness to accept Christ as her Savior and Lord. And sadly, nothing short of the atrocities and the blasphemies and the abominations and the evil persecution of the Antichrist will do this. You see, there's certainly been no shortage of wicked anti-Semitic persecutions in Israel's long history. But none of them have brought her to bow the knee before Christ, have they? So it's going to take the horrible evil of this final man, this Antichrist, to finally get Israel to bow the knee and accept her Savior. He's also going to be an apostate. He will have no regard uh, for Any gods, even the God of his fathers, it says, God, capital G, in the King James, verse 37. Now that phrase, God of his fathers, with a capital G, has been used as one of the main supports for those who say that the Antichrist will be Jewish. They argue that that phrase refers to the God of Scripture. So the Antichrist must be Jewish. However, the original Hebrew for God is Elohim. We've talked about that word before. It's a plural form of the word God, which can be used for either the true triune God, because our God is one God who consists of three persons. Elohim is plural. I am ending in Hebrew is plural. So if, if you use a capital E for Elohim or capital G for God, it refers to the true God, our Christian God, Or if it's with a small e or a small g, it can refer to false gods. But it does not mean that the Antichrist is going to be Jewish. You cannot use that phrase, the God of his fathers, to mean that he's going to be Jewish. In fact, he is not going to be Jewish. He's going to be a Gentile. And I'm not going to just say... Because I say so. (laughs) I'm going to give you from Scripture reasons why the Antichrist will be a Gentile, and he will not be Jewish. Number one, all the prophetically given character types of the Antichrist in Scripture, and I just gave you some a little while ago, Nebuchadnezzar, Belshazzar, uh antiochus epiphanes alexander the great so on there was many many types of christ in the old testament scripture all of them were gentiles not a single exception also the antichrist is described in revelation chapter 13 and also in chapter 17 as a the beast who rises up out of the sea the sea the sea in scripture is an image, it's a picture, it's symbolic of the Gentile nations. Now, the false prophet is a beast up out of the land, which is why I say he will be Jewish, most likely, out of the land of Israel. But the Antichrist is a beast out of the sea, so he's got to be Gentile. Also, the Antichrist is connected with the people who destroyed Jerusalem in 70 AD. Daniel 9.26, the prince of the people who destroyed Jerusalem were the Romans. And the Romans are not Jewish. They're Gentiles. He comes out of the head of a beast that represents a yet future revived Roman Empire. Also, he's going to be the final king of the entire period called the times of the Gentiles. Jesus called it that in Luke twenty-one twenty-four. Every other king of that period, the times of the Gentiles, every other king from Nebuchadnezzar on down was Gentile. So the last king would not therefore be Jewish. It would just contradict the very nature of it being the times of the Gentiles. You get it? So the Antichrist is not going to be Jewish. The apostasy of the Antichrist from the faith of his fathers could actually be from Christianity. He could, he could, um, he he could just, you know, disregard the God of his fathers who, who might have been Christians or, you know, professing Christians, whatever. But if, if that's the case, then the King James rendering of Elohim with a capital E and a capital G for God is correct. His apostasy from the God of his fathers could also be from some non-Judeo-Christian religion. Um, which would necessitate the rendering of Elohim as small e and small g for gods. You see, here's the here's the fact: <laughs> the translators <coughs> didn't know whether to use a capital G or not. They didn't know because the Antichrist hasn't come on the scene yet. So some, like the King James, did use a capital G. Some. Translations use a small g, gods. They didn't know, and neither do we yet. We don't know whether to use a capital G or a small g. So, <clears throat> what we do know, however, is that no matter whatever religion the Antichrist came from, in other words, whatever was the religion of his fathers, he is going to turn from it as an apostate in absolute disregard of it. He will have no respect for whatever deity or deities his fathers or his ancestors worshipped. So that's all we can say about that, is he's going to be an apostate from his own religion. He's also going to hate Christ. The Antichrist will hate Christ. Of course, we know he's going to hate God, too. In the interpretation of Daniel's vision of chapter 8, Gabriel had told the prophet... Daniel, about a king of fierce countenance who would come in the latter time. And we talked about the fact that that was not Antichus Epiphanes. That is speaking of the Antichrist. And Gabriel said that this one would use craft or deceit to prosper. He would magnify himself in his own heart. He would destroy many by peace. And he would stand up against the prince of princes. And that is definitely a reference to Christ, who is the prince of princes. That was in Daniel 8, verses 23 to 25. And that, again, is why it couldn't have been Antiochus Epiphanes, because he knew nothing about Christ. Christ hadn't come to earth yet when Antiochus Epiphanes was on earth. This is speaking of the Antichrist. He's going to stand up against the prince of princes. So from Daniel's perspective, you know, 500 years before Christ's first coming, he understood that this coming king would disregard the gods of the past of his ancestors, that he would disregard the true God of the present the God Daniel knew, and he would disregard, have no respect whatsoever, the promised deliverer of the future, the coming Messiah. We learn more about the Antichrist's enmity with Christ in verse 37 here, where the angel said that he would also have no regard for the desire of women. Now that has been interpreted many ways, the desire of women. Some have said that it speaks of the Antichrist's total disregard for household gods that were often desired by women for good luck in protection or in bearing children, such as those that were coveted and stolen by Rachel from her father Laban. In Genesis thirty one. So some have said that's what he'll disregard is the the household gods that women desire. Others have said that it refers to the idols which are associated with the Semiramis Tammuz cult. Talked about in Ezekiel eight fourteen, and that we've talked about in the past Babylonian cult, a false Trinity cult. Nimrod, Simiramis, his wife, and Tammuz, etc. We talked about that long ago in our first lesson, our first um, year in Daniel. But those gods were often also desired by women. I don't think either one of those would be appropriate for an Antichrist, a man in the world today. Most men do disregard <laughs> those kind of idols in the world. So that would not make him stand out as any different. Others think that this means he's just not going to be in touch with his feminine side, that he's not going to care about women and their emotions and be a misogynist or something like that, or that he's not going to care about children because children are the desire of women. He's not going to have any care about children. And then others, of course, I'm sure you've heard this one say that this means the Antichrist will be homosexual because he will have no desire for women. But, to suddenly mention his sexual orientation doesn't fit the context of the passage, which is all about his religious association. If you go through verses 36 to 39, you'll find that the word God or gods are used eight times. So, this is all about his, his religious orientation, not his sexual orientation. The best explanation is that the term, the desire of women, refers to Christ. He's going to have no regard for Christ. It was the desire of every believing woman, beginning with Eve, to bring the promised Savior into the world. And then when God narrowed the Messianic line down to, uh, you know, more specifically, to the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, it became the desire of Jewish women. To bring the Messiah into the world. And that same Hebrew word for desire. Is found in Haggai 2.7. Where it refers to Christ. As the desire of nations. The nouns. That follow the word desire. Women and nations. You know in these two passages from Daniel and Haggai. Those two nouns are to be understood as subjective and not objective which means that the true meaning is desired by women and desired by nations. You see Daniel eleven thirty seven is not a reference to the Antichrist's lack of desire for women and Haggai 2 7 is not a reference to Christ's desire for nations it's the desire of women and the desire of nations and their desires are one and the same <laughs> it's the desire for Christ the antichrist may be a homosexual i don't know but you cannot make that declaration based on daniel 11:37 and the, the words he will have no regard for the desire of women because it's the desire of women is Christ. So what we can declare is that he will be a self-willed, atheistic, apostate, blasphemous-seeking narcissist who glorifies himself but hates God and hates his blessed son, the Lord Jesus. That's what we can say dogmatically. He also, um, another characteristic is that he... He um he has strong military might. The only thing that, that he will regard other than himself is the God of forces, it tells us in verse 38. The heart of this man will honor military strength and weapons. The Hebrew word translated forces refers to fortresses or munitions. What a great contrast he's going to be to those tribulation believers who will see God Almighty as their fortress and their refuge and their strength. But he is going to show honor to the strange God of nuclear weaponry, probably, because of the day in which we live. Unlike his forefathers, who laid all their gold and silver and precious stones at the feet of their gods, He's going to be obsessed with a strange God. He's going to pour his wealth into being the superior force on earth because of his vast accumulation of weapons of mass destruction. Now, admittedly, verses 38 and 39 are very difficult to interpret. They haven't happened yet, so they're hard to understand. And for this reason, I'm just going to read a passage from Dr. John Walvoord who explained them in the following manner. Quote, "although all expositors necessarily must use their judgment in determining the identity of this description what will be completely different about the world religion at the end time will be 1 the complete destruction of all previous religions symbolized in revelation 7:16 and 2" the worship of the world ruler without reference to any other divine power except that of Satan. For this world ruler, already claiming to be God, to acknowledge something as supreme clearly indicates that the God of fortresses is not a person, but the power to make war. It becomes evident that that the sole confidence of this final world ruler is his mi- is in military power, personified as the god of fortresses. In other words, he is a complete materialist. This is blasphemy to the ultimate, the exaltation of human power and attainment. He is Satan's masterpiece, a human being who is Satan's substitute for Jesus Christ, hence properly identified as the Antichrist. His activities, in keeping with his complete materialism, are characterized by warfare and his honoring those who honor him. Those cooperating are given subsidiary rule, expressed by the phrase, he shall cause them to rule over many, and he shall divide the land for gain that is, shall reapportion territories in keeping with his desire for conquest. Taking the passage Daniel eleven thirty six to thirty nine as a whole, it is apparent that the revelation provides an inclusive analysis of the combination of materialism, militarism, and religion all of which will be embodied in this final world ruler. That comes from Dr. Walbord's book, Daniel, the Key to Prophetic Revelation. All right, let's move on and look at his conquests. And for this, I will read verses 40 to 45a. Daniel 11, starting at verse 40. And at the time of the end, shall the king of the south push at him, And the king of the north shall come against him like a whirlwind with chariots and with horsemen and with many ships. And he shall enter into the countries and shall overflow and pass over. He shall enter also into the glorious land, that's Israel, and many countries shall be overthrown. But these shall escape out of his hand, even Edom and Moab and the chief of the children of Ammon. He shall stretch forth his hand also upon the countries, and the land of Egypt shall not escape. And he shall have power over the treasures of gold and of silver, and over all the precious things of Egypt, and the Libyans and the Ethiopians shall be at his steps. But tidings out of the east and out of the north again shall trouble him. Therefore, he shall go forth with great fury to destroy and utterly to make away many. And he shall plant the tabernacles of his palace between the seas in the glorious holy mountain. I'm going to stop right there because this is where it ends about his conquests. These final verses of Daniel 11 reemphasize the time of the end, right? When is all this going to take place? The time of the end. Verse 40. And that certainly did not come about with Antiochus Epiphanes, Herod the Great, or even the ancient Roman Empire. Instead, what we will read about in these verses is conflicts and conquests that are yet to take place during the reign of the Antichrist. You know, a rather prominent misconception is that the entire world will become so enamored with this man that the nations of the world willingly surrender their sovereignty to him but that just simply is not the case much of the world will resist him especially in the last three and a half years Uh, and the result will be that he destroys to an extraordinary degree as it told us back in chapter eight verse 24 i think a lot of this will be done with his weapons of mass destruction But at some point in the middle of the tribulation, the Antichrist, after being empowered and possessed by Satan, and after breaking his covenant with Israel and desecrating her temple, after devouring the one-world ecumenical harlot church and replacing it with the worship of himself, he will then declare himself and his imperialistic government to be the supreme ruler and state of the world. And not every government is going to come crawling. We learn in verse 40 that the king of the south and the king of the north are going to come against him. Now in the previous verses of chapter 11, the terms king of the south and king of the north referred to whichever Ptolemaic or Seleucid king was either ruling Egypt, the south, or Syria, the north. In these verses, the terms would still refer to rulers over lands that are to the north or the south of Israel. The king of the south will be a political leader who may come from Egypt, but it's likely that his forces will encompass more than just Egypt. The king of the north will likely include the political and military forces north of Israel, which would include and could include Syria and and Russia, or Turkey, you know. um, But there's no mention, there's no mention of such a campaign in the historical books of the Maccabees, or by any ancient historian. There just is no record of this, and that's why the liberals have to say, oh, well, you know, their fake Daniel was imagining this. (laughs) Some have suggested that this describes the War of Gog and Magog, from Ezekiel 38 and 39, but that invasion only comes from the north, whereas in this battle, the invasion of Israel comes from both the north and the south. Furthermore, in the War of Gog and Magog, God is responsible for the supernatural victory of that war, not the Antichrist, and here the Antichrist is the victorious one. Well, because of this attack from these two kings <clears throat> of the north and the south, the Antichrist will launch a counter-attack on those who have dared to rebel against him. It says he will occupy the glorious land of Israel, and he's going to enter like a whirlwind into the attacking countries. He will have great victory in that he will gain much wealth from Egypt and Libya and Ethiopia. Uh, those are... Uh, ancient lands that covered a lot of north africa a lot of muslim countries of north africa will come together you know for as king of the south to attack him however interestingly the territory that was once under the ancient lands of edom and moab and ammon uh which is today modern day jordan somehow that territory will be spared tells us in verse 41, which is interesting. I don't know, maybe that's perhaps so that many Jews can escape and believers can escape to Petra in Jordan. But Jordan will be spared from the Antichrist in this battle. And from this point, his authority will only be intact as long as his military campaigns are able to occupy and control the rebellious countries. Well, soon thereafter, the authority of the Antichrist is again threatened. He's he hears he makes his um, palace tabernacle in Israel <clears throat> between the two seas, which is between the the um, Mediterranean and the Dead Sea, and the beautiful holy mountain. So that means he sets up his palace in Mount Zion, there in Jerusalem, and he gets word. Uh, That there is an army approaching from the east, which likely refers to the same eastern army of 200 million described in Revelation 9, and again in Revelation chapter 16, which marches across the dried up Euphrates River on its way to Israel, and that massive army was always scoffed at by the Bible critics for years that no army could ever be that big, but we know today China definitely has an army of 200 million soldiers. This army will be energized by the demonic forces of Satan, who is behind this plan to bring all of these armies together in an effort to fight Christ. Of course, the armies are coming to fight the Antichrist, but Satan is bringing all of this together because he know Christ is going to appear very soon. He knows how to count, and he knows when seven years are going to be over, so he's bringing all of these armies together in order to obliterate Israel and to fight Christ when he returns. Well, at the same time the Grand Eastern Army is moving toward the Holy Land, there's yet another invasion that comes from the north. The Antichrist, who of course is also energized by the devil, will launch his counterattack from his new tabernacle palace uh, between the seas there from Jerusalem. So it will be from Jerusalem that Antichrist will go forth with great fury to destroy and to attempt to subject the citizens of the world to his will and to his imperial one world government. It will be at this time that the most evil tyrant to ever walk the face of planet earth will meet his end. His death and the deaths of multitudes of Satan's followers will take place when all these Gentile armies merge in Israel's Valley of Megiddo. For what is known as the great battle of Armageddon. So let's look at the conclusion of the Antichrist. The last part of verse 45 where it says. Yet he shall come to his end and none shall help him. The great battle of Armageddon will bring history right to the point of the second coming of Christ. The seven years of the tribulation. That 70th week. Of the 70 weeks prophecy of Daniel 9 will be at its end. Israel will have been devastated because once again she will have served as the battleground for much of this continued warfare. And of course she will be persecuted by the Antichrist who is dwelling among her. And according to Zechariah 13.8, two of every three Israelites will be dead. The nation will be in the deepest throes of sorrow she has ever known. But, (laughs) it's always the darkest right before the dawn, isn't it? When it looks like she will be obliterated, suddenly the heavens will open. And one called faithful and true and the word of God and King of kings and Lord of lords will appear from the heavens riding on his white horse. And with one quick swipe from the sword of his lips, he will smite the nations gathered against his beloved Israel, the apple of his eye and like Joseph's brothers, Israel, will burst into mournful tears, realizing that the one she betrayed and sold and thought long dead is none other than her kinsman redeemer, and his name is that name she has long forbidden her children to even speak that name above every name, the name Jesus, and bowing before him in full repentance and faith, Israel will finally kiss the son, S-O-N, and be saved. And that is the real triumphal entry of the Lord. At that triumphant entry, the Antichrist shall come to his end, and none shall help him. He may have been mighty against the king of the south, and he may have been vicious against the king of the north, and he may have Satan's power behind him even to have been victorious against the mighty army of the king of the east, but he will be utterly powerless and puny against the king Of the universe. Amen. Amen. That cannot be. Speaking of Antiochus Epiphanes, he died in Media. He did not die between the seas in the glorious holy mountain. However, you can rest assured that that will be the death place of the Antichrist. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, We thank you for this time we have spent together in your word this morning. As we have studied through this book of Daniel, we have come to learn so much about the Antichrist, probably more than we want to know. We've learned about his character, his blasphemies, his persecutions, his deceptions, his lies, his his ego, and the men of history who have foreshadowed him. Father, may we be aware of the fact that even though this particular man has not risen into the world into worldview as of yet. There are many Antichrists in the world today, and the spirit of Antichrist is the prevailing spirit of the world system. The spirit of Antichrist is that which denies the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ. So Lord, please give each of us the discernment and the wisdom to test the spirits. And to recognize the true from the false. And we know that the best way to be able to do that is to focus on the true. To know the Lord Jesus Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. To know him personally, not just to know about him. And Lord, may we allow the Holy Spirit to take the things of Christ and make them real to us in our daily living May the important question of our hearts not be who is the Antichrist going to be, but may that vital question for us to answer correctly be the one the Lord himself asked. Who do men say that I am? Who do you say that I am? I pray, Father, that each of us can truly answer and point to you and say, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God, the one who has saved my eternal soul from sin. I pray that is true for every one of us here and listening and that it will be true for our children for generations to come, if you tarry. Now, Father, consume us this week with a burning commitment to serve you, for it's in the name of our precious Savior, the name of Jesus, that we do ask these things knowing they are in accordance with his person and his will. Amen.